Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today's guest is Mogan Smet. He's been described as polarizing. He's been removed twice as the CEO from his own public companies. He's been through hell and back. And when you listen to him speak, you'll hear a man who doesn't mince his words. But underline that, you're gonna hear a man at 71 years of age that doesn't hold back from recognizing and sharing credit with those who have helped build his grand visions and ultimately who have helped him achieve his outstanding success. You'll hear a tried, tested, and true business philosophy, something that's so timely given the recent global events we're all facing. He went from bankruptcy to building two companies, one of which sold for over $200 million, and the next, which reached a $600 million market cap, both of which were listed on the TSX and NASDAQ. After being unceremoniously dismissed from his last company, he's on to his third company, Falkbuilt, which is focusing on digital component construction for the building industry. We talked about his past companies and about being public, but there's so much more to take away from this episode. Unlike a ton of management gurus preaching their own opinions, Mogan's been through it and he shares his model for success. Certainly give this some time as the more you listen, the more you'll laugh and the more you'll learn. Mogan's is also a champion of Calgary and Alberta, as this is his home. His experience and message of optimism are especially important for all those who are experiencing hard times given the unprecedented economic headwinds we're facing. I encourage you to listen to this and to share this with he's been through this a few times and he continues to succeed. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of the Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services. They've been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of just making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now let's get on with it. I know this episode is very timely, and Mogan shares some great advice. On the line, I have Mogan Smed. Mogan's, you are a very colorful and lifelong entrepreneur, and I'm very happy to have you on the show here. I think there's a lot that you can share with us. What I'd like to do is start off with the guests providing a bit of an introduction for themselves. Can I hand it over to you and, and share who you are and your career with us? Well, first of all, my father was a cabinet maker from Denmark, and we came to Calgary in 1952, which in the, my whole career, we've lived here. It's the only place in the world that I would live. It's a wonderful place to live and the people in the city, and it's always been totally supportive of whatever our efforts have been, and, and our family has reaped the benefits of this environment, and we continue to. My father started out as a cabinet maker, and 
We worked for my father since we we're about five years old. He started the business himself in 1965. And my brother and I ended up, uh, we finished our, when we finished our schooling, I was in pre-law at University of Alberta. Luckily, I was too dumb to be a lawyer. The only one that would accept me in the whole world was in Adelaide, Australia. So my brother and I started a business called Scandinavian Wood Industries or Metrics Wood. And we ran that until 1982. Again, didn't heed our father's advice. He kept warning us that too much of our business was focused on the energy business, specific in those days, Dome Petroleums and Petro Canada. And he said, when those customers go away, you're going to go away. And sure enough, that's what happened. So we ended up going bankrupt. And my father actually died from the stress of the bankruptcy. And after two or three months of feeling sorry for ourselves, you know, we had to look at our retrospectives. What about those 235 people and their families that don't have a job? because of our stupidity. We had already started, and I'd already started a new business, borrowed some money from friends, and we got bought, our old company got bought by a company from Ontario, an individual who backed me, Steve Doodlesack, gave me some strong advice. He said, Bogan's money is round. He says, your company will be back to you sooner than you think. Less than five years later, they sold the business back to me. Uh, we went through, developed that company, it was called Smed International. And we grew it, it was growing fairly well until 1993. We hit another bump in the road where our sales dropped off dramatically down to 39 million. At that point, we were deeply in debt with a venture capitalist out of Ontario. As luck would have it, we made an acquisition for a company, a movable wall company called ProWest. That gave us the story and the leverage to move forward. In 1995, we were doing 52 million. In 2000, we were doing 300 million. We got purchased by a company called Hayworth. We're a public company on the NASDAQ and on the Toronto Stock Exchange. I lasted all of two years there. And then I went, I worked as a CEO of a company called Evans Consoles. I worked there for about seven to nine months. I can't even remember how long it was a short stay and realized that it wasn't a place for me. So I started a new company called Dirt Environmental Solutions, February 1st, 2004. We grew that business to the year that we got, that they fired me in 2018. We did $356 million and made $60 million. That wasn't good enough for our board. They wanted to keep growing the business. We definitely did not agree with what they wanted to do. It's interesting to note, when we left the company, the company was worth just a little under 600 million. Today, the company with their strategy is worth barely over $100 million. So I guess, it goes to show that one thing we learned in all of this, if you don't know the business, you can't be running the business. And that's definitely one of my mantras in anything that I do. Mm -hmm. And here we are today. We started Falk Built after we got fired. And Barry Loberg and myself, we started this company. We had six people last February. Today, we have 160 people. And we have uh, distributors all over the U.S. and Canada with their factory branches, actually. And we have a factory branch in Dubai and one in Mumbai. So um, we've grown very, very quickly. This pandemic is a little inconvenient, no question about it. But when we get through this thing, which we will one way or the other, it's just a matter of how bloody we have to get. I said, we see a huge surge in our business and a big demand for what we're doing. As something comes to mind here, Mogens, and hearing about your career and I think it was Steve Jobs who said something along the lines of, if you want to get rich, get one idea and don't get another one. What I see here is you started off in the cabinet making space and then you took that experience and have built and really focused on 
office interiors or interior construction. And there seems to be these really interesting iterations to that from what I understand SMED was internationally, which you sold. I'd love to hear about the venture capital issues you had there. But then you went on to build Dirt, which is Do It Right This Time, and now Falk Built. Can we talk about the difference, though, between Dirt and now Falk Built between the the modular and, and digital component construction? Because they're all in the same vein. You've just continued to build and iterate and add more technologies to this. So what's there? What is digital component construction for Falk and where are you going? Well, really, I've had two careers my whole life. The one that I never made any money at being a general contractor, but I enjoyed it because it was building and creating and, and watching things get built. That's why I have a passion for that. And then the other one was manufacturing. One of the problems was when we started out manufacturing modular furniture, which was today is still the approach to furniture. However, we tried to bring modularity into the construction industry, which, number one, is a completely different process than what the construction industry is used to. The trades didn't like it, and it was a premium to conventional construction. We did extremely well with dirt doing because we digitized the modular business that had been around since 1915. And we're able to turn it into something very, very good. We couldn't have grown it much past what I told you for 2018. And that was one of the big things is that we had realized that we had grown it to the limit. We had 1,250 employees and almost a million square feet in manufacturing and warehouse and showrooms across North America and the Middle East. We couldn't grow it any farther. And also the available market. You know, we were a premium to conventional construction. We were contrary to uh, the way that the product was delivered. The freight was extremely high. And at the end of the day, we were chasing of a $100 billion industry. We were only chasing $5 billion of the available interior construction industry. When we started Dirge, a Falk rather, back in September 2018, I went to Barry Loberg to say, Barry, because the digital approach of what we did for Dirt was extremely impressive with the iSoftware. And I said, Barry, is there something that we could develop that could be just as good at dirt without copying dirt. Because that's the one thing we never do. Nobody likes a copier. Nobody. And the last thing we would do is invent a business, whether it's going from cement to dirt or dirt to fault. We would never do something to be a better iteration of that. We would do it completely different. So I asked him, I said, Barry, can we have something as good as ice for fault? And he says, remember, Mogens, when ICE was developed, and the thing about it is it's a legacy debt that you have. He says there was no such thing as an iPhone, let alone artificial intelligence or big data. So what we can develop this time, and we can digitize the conventional construction industry, we will be able to deliver a technology that's a thousand times more powerful, number one. Number two, that we'll be able to deliver it to the whole industry, which includes the construction industry, the architectural design community, the engineering community, and we'll be able to link the whole thing. We'll link it in the cloud. We'll have artificial intelligence in there, and we'll have big data in there. And you know, quite frankly, so what we've done now is we've built a developed solutions. And one thing we don't do is we don't invent, we innovate. We've developed solutions here at, at Fault that we've already got over 80 successful installations. We've quoted over 2,200 individual projects. Less than 50 of them have we bumped into dirt because we're after a completely different market here. And the delivery process, our freight is a third. Our factories are a fifth the size. We're using one quarter as many people. Obviously, we're much, much more competitive with what we... So now we're coming to the market, which instead of being a premium 
to the conventional construction market, we're actually competitive with conventional construction. Hmm. Something I, I find interesting, and I think it's a theme with all of your companies and experiences is, and I know we're not going down the finance route, uh, hopefully we'll get there, but you've talked about in your personal writings about the teams that you work with. And I think there's also a lot of, not offside, but definitely colorful humor. Like, Falk is my family middle name, and we called it Falk because we don't want to Falk it up this time. Right. And, and you know, this, these play on words and this character and the culture that comes into your company, how has that benefited you? And, and I know you've got a strong philosophy about the people that you're surrounded with. I mean, the only thing you have in your life is your reputation, your experience, and your relationships. And the relationships that I have and that I've, over the years, of the people that I've been working with, not that have worked for me, whether they're our customers or distribution or it's our people that work in our factories or in our offices, obviously the key is you can't take yourself too serious. If you don't know that humility is an important aspect of leadership, then you shouldn't be a darn leader, right? You know, because you want them to see your flaws. You want to see them that you're not asking them to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. And quite frankly, I'm Danish. I believe that the two most important things in life are loyalty and a sense of humor. If we hmm. can't have, you know, a sense of humor, how do we get through all of these things? Hmm. You touched on something there as well as being your reputation. And I saw on your personal site, you make mention to being perhaps the most fireable CEO. There's got to be some kind of of emotional piece that you had there. I mean, nobody wants to be fired, especially from their own company. So can you tell us what happened in the cases because it's happened more than once and, and well, what happened there and how did you get through that? First of all, I would never quit. That's the key. The last 18 months at Dirt were the most miserable days of my life. Me being a potted plant as what they were doing in my mind was ultimately going to destroy the business, that everything we had worked for to create a culture, to create a business, to create an environment of challenging the people, but, you know, then also empowering them. All of these things, you know, that make it the, the direct communication. I was always in direct communication with the clients or our people and all that. Those are type of things that drove our business. When I start seeing bureaucracy sneak in there and management levels and job descriptions and all those type of things, I realize that that's the kind of thing. We're in a construction business. We're in the rectum of the business. We're in dead last. The customer's out of time, out of money. We got to be agile. We got to be responsive and we got to give them what they want. And that's what it takes. You can't do that sitting in a darn boardroom. You've got to be out there in the marketplace. Everybody has to be building. We only have one boss. There's only one boss. It's not finance because nobody will deal with us. It's not operations because we'd only make beige. It sure as the hell isn't sales and marketing because we'd have anarchy. It's the customer. We all work for the customer. And that's always been our approach that no matter what, I had a thing that uh, Dick Hayward maybe take down. I said, we will spend $1,000 to fix a dollar, a $1 mistake. Next to a divorce, the most expensive thing in the whole world is losing a client. I have a sense, and I, and I wonder if you can talk about being a public company. You were listed on the TSX and the NASDAQ. Yeah. And yeah. you all of a sudden are beholden to the relationships of, of, with your board and with the shareholders ultimately. And, and it sounds like, those relationships perhaps led by the mindsets of very quantitative thinking started to infiltrate and, and impact the culture that you had there. And Well, first of all, when you have shareholders 
and they invest in you, part of your commitment is there has to be a liquidity event, right? And if you're a, a company that's growing, there isn't going to be any liquidity because you're reinvesting all the money in the business. And by going public, it gave them the opportunity. Everybody that invested early in Smed International or invested early in Dirt, anyone and anyone in this company, you know what? They made at least 10 times their money. And that's with a bargain. You can't do that as a private company. There's no liquidity for them. That's the guarantee that we gave them. And we'll do the same thing again, probably on the software side. You can't ask to get capital either, unless you're going for straight venture capital, and then you can get in a lot of trouble, right? Because then they're running your business. And what has been your experience with venture capitalists? Because you made mention to that with, with SMED. No, that was early on in 1993. You got involved with the company in 1993 to get the money. And it couldn't have been worse because we literally borrowed the $10 million. And within six months, our sales had dropped in less than half. So it was all bad timing. I can imagine how these guys are feeling right now that just bought WestJet a few months ago. We're not afraid of venture capital. If it's performance-based, we don't have a problem because we intend to do what we say we're going to do and exceed it. That's just the way it is. I'm curious about how, from your leadership and how you get through some of these stressful events, whether it be the bankruptcy or whether it be uh, the recent difficulties you've had with dirt and then moving into to Falkbilt, you make mention of going bankrupt in 82 and, and how this has a connection to your father who had a heart attack and passed away. Do you carry any kind of anxiety or fear attached to that? I mean, no. or how have you got over that? Well, first of all, if you're going to focus on the problems instead of the opportunity, you are going to be stressed. That's the way it is. If I didn't think there was such a great opportunity like right now, quite frankly, I would shut it down. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't make any sense. But we have a great vision here. And the key, like, you know, the Germans call it gestalt. Focus on the vision. Focus on the opportunity. The problems are going to be there. But if you waste all your time worrying about the problems, I'm in construction for the love of God. When I wake up every morning, I know I have at least 50 challenges. If I thought I had 50 problems, the stress would kill me. It's how we respond to those challenges. And quite frankly, in times like this, you just got to stay focused on the vision. You just do, right? And people say, well, what if you run out of money? I said, well, what the hell can I do about that, right? You know, you just do what you can do. That's all you can do and keep moving for God's sakes. I'd like to take a quick moment to say thanks again to Olympia Trust Company for supporting this podcast. They've been supporting both the public and private companies of Western Canada for well over 20 years, and they take a huge amount of pride in the personalized customer service they deliver. So if you need any transfer agent or corporate trustee services work, I highly encourage you to reach out. Now back to the show. I take that and that fits into your stating that you're not afraid to fail. And what I'm hearing there is that just by focusing on the opportunities, it's a mindset which keeps you out of there. Has that ever fluctuated with the ups and downs of your career? Have you ever had times where you second-guessed yourself? Oh, I made thousands of mistakes, thousands of mistakes, for the love of God. But like Mark Cuban said, he said, perfection will destroy any business. You've got to make decisions, live with the decisions. The non-decision will kill you. That's just the way it is. We're in, again, in that extemporaneous business where we've got to rely on our experience, quite frankly, on our team of people to get things done. And that's the way it is. Uh, of course, we make mistakes every single day. That's the business that we're in. 
you know, you mentioned the lawsuit. Gee whiz, I'm in construction. There's lawsuits all over the place all the time, especially frivolous ones like this one that the dirt has. I mean, they're a distraction. There's no question about it, but it's certainly not something. I don't think about it one little bit, to be honest. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, as we, we did discuss in the pre-call here was it's a $17 million lawsuit, as I understand, but I can tell from how you approach this, it's just, it's a non-issue and, and you just embrace this as just, it's just part of doing business. Well, it would be an issue if we were the least bit guilty. We're not. So that makes it quite simply the way it is. You know, this is the legal process at its very worst. I think we call them prostitutes, don't we? You know what they're doing here. I've got lots of dear friends that are lawyers, and they will be the first to admit that a lot of what they do has nothing to do with the legalese or what's right or what's wrong in the law. It's just their job. Can I ask how there's those who are on the opposing side and then those lawyers you work with personally. Mm -hmm. As an entrepreneur and a, and a CEO and a leader of, of your companies, how have you found the best way to work with your lawyers to maximize that relationship? Because they don't come cheap. Well, first of all, I don't deal with them. I have other people that are a lot smarter than me and a lot more capable and that are prepared to go through the arduous process that it is. I'm the last person you want to see in an examination for discovery because I will not hide my contempt for the other side. That's the way it is. So my lawyers try to keep me out of those things as much as possible. <laughs> I like your self-awareness there. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, now... With all of this, you built some very cool companies, and they're sizable. Now with Falkbuilt, you're moving into what it seems like a much larger opportunity. Both your previous companies were public. As I understand, SMED was. Maybe I'm mistaken there. But, yeah, uh, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And now with Falk, would you go public again? And what does that look like for you? And, and a big part of this reason why I'm asking is I would like to hear your advice that you would share for CEOs who are public now and well, how you've managed markets and... Well, do you know what? First of all, I would definitely, maybe on the software side, we have two companies. We have Echo, our software, and we have Falkbill, our construction company. But you have to understand, to grow a business, you're going to need capital, number one. Number two is that you can't blow and suck. You can't ask people to invest money in you and then not give them a return on their investment, either in dividends. I mean, obviously, the first four or five years, we're going to be growing the business. It's not like going to be, there's going to be a bunch of cash laying around. So there's not going to be anything to give back to the shareholders. We've got to build at least four factories in the U.S. and we're going to build one over in India. So these are going to require capital, right? Well, the way you do that is through either a public vehicle or some kind of that contemplates part of that. We think our software will have an amazing value. We don't know what it's going to be in dollars, but it's going to be serious money. Look at our ambition is to turn Falkbuilt into a billion dollar company within the next seven years. Um, that's what our goal is. And do you picture that as a public offering? I mean, is that where you'd go? And is that like well, a public venture capital route, or would you stick with private dollars before you'd you'd go to market? First of all, you have to demonstrate, you know, success and profitability. You don't go to the public market on the come. I mean, I think guys like Uber and, and WeWorks and some of the other companies out there that they're losing money hand over fist and haven't really shown a clear path of where they're ever going to make money. You know, there's definitely exceptions to the rule there. But I think that the whole thing is that we have to demonstrate strong profitability and ability as a private company before and also the ability. You're always got to be selling tomorrow. That's how I stay married. 
I tell my wife, I said, darling, I may not be great today, but when you see what's coming tomorrow, when you're <laughs> going to go public, you better have not just, hey, look at what a great business we have. What is it that we've got for the future? You've got to be showing them that you have a vision for the future that's going to take it to the next level. That's why people invest in you. And quite frankly, that they believe that you can do it. So how do you manage that in selling that story? And, and how much time do you commit to that? Because I think a lot of public market CEOs forget that they have to build and continue to sell themselves and their relationships to investors. How well, do you manage that? Well, first of all, again, I'm sort of like the antichrist of the financial community because I'm the risk taker. I'm the one that's driving it. And I have very good people financial people as far as because at the end of the day you got to report your quarterly earnings or your earnings your cash flow your gross margins all of those things have to be communicated right so we want to make darn sure and by the way that's what i do the one thing is i've always been deadly honest i don't spin the story if we've had a bad quarter we tell them it's a bad quarter we didn't sell enough or whatever we don't spend a whole bunch of time and that's why the market has always, they, when, I, when we were at dirt between our people that did most of the communications, we were always dead honest. The market could always trust us in telling the truth. We never, ever, ever surprised them to the downside, ever. It sounds like there's no sugarcoating. That's what people want. Remember, these are financial people. You know, sometimes you've got to search real hard to see, find a heart in them. You know what I mean? That's all. So mm. you've got to tell them the truth. That's all. They work with their brains. They're financial people, but I, I often argue that emotion trumps logic to get the story to these kind of people's brains. And once they start to embrace the story, you can deliver the facts and figures that, that support it as a good business. I violently agree with you. Are you kidding? I'm passionate about everything I do. Yeah, yeah. And so do you individually reach out to these analysts and to the market, or do you have an IR teamer who does this? And what does well, your have- roadshow look like if, you know, if we weren't in an era of pandemic, what would your roadshow look like and how do you engage these people? Well, right now, it really has been Barry Loberg and myself that have done it when we've been doing it because Barry is the one that I can tell you right now, without a doubt, one of the smartest technology people in the entire world lives right here in Calgary, Alberta. His mm. name is Barry Loberg. The way he talks and describes it and understands it, it's way above my pay grade. In fact, I, I do criticize them sometimes. I said, Barry, you're talking over their head. Can you really get down to the level to make them understand it right? And, but he has an incredible mind and vision for what technology can do. He's already proven it with dirt. Look at $356 million company. 100% of what was behind that was technology. We had great products and a great team of people and a great culture. No question, but we couldn't have done it without the technology. Interesting. So, so there's a, a dynamic duo there between the two of you. Yeah, I mean, uh, my attitude is, is that you can't make any money if you don't have profitable sales. No, that's the way it is. And the way to get profitable sales is to go out there. Look, at we've already been able to establish 37. Here we are. We're not even two years old, and we can establish 37 factory branches. And they actually have invested 66% of the money that we've raised has come from those factory branches. They all have skin in the games. We've quoted this so-called pandemic. It's been there. But since March 15th, since it all started, we've quoted over $30 million of the work that we know is coming to us when we come out of this thing. Incredible. 
right now there's similarity between I think perhaps 1982 when when you went bankrupt and with current companies now in in Alberta and and globally. What advice would you have for the CEOs who are and the management teams who are going through this incredibly difficult time? And how would you advise them to get through this? Well, this is my advice. One thing is for sure, and I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but if you're laying off hundreds of people, then if you're the CEO or senior management, you shouldn't be paying yourself a penny, not a penny. And the board of directors shouldn't be getting any fees. They've got to show that they're participating in the pain of the situation. It's a short-term thing, but if they don't step up and do at least that, there's a certain hypocrisy in this. You know, these Mm -hmm. are times that everybody remembers. And also, if there was ever a time for real leadership and leaving the people with a positive note, this is the time. This isn't the time to be hiding. That's for sure. You've got to be visible out there, good or bad. I'm going to digress here, but I suspect that we perhaps have the same views on this. When you look at what's happening in the U.S. now, and and to some degree Canada as well, with these massive bailouts for some of these companies, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I'm of the mindset that when you're bailing out airlines with public dollars, I look and say, you know what? You should let them fail. Those executives made huge mistakes in not planning for a rainy day. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, we're not looking for a handout. You know, we'll take anything that's available. But the point is, is that honestly, Canada doesn't have anything available. We've got things we've got always in the past. We've got great support from the Business Development Bank. They've really been supportive of us. Export Development has been prepared to come in there and help us out when they can. Not so far yet, but I know they will, but they have in the past. But bailing out we should be looking after the little entrepreneurs that have a restaurant, you know, the, all their life, they're living paycheck to paycheck and they have a restaurant. We should be looking at, we really, look at us. Here we are. We had six people last February. We have 160 people today. It's companies like ours that are going to be the new companies and the growth that are using technology, that are employing people. That's who you should be supporting, not ones that are big mega corporations, for God's sakes. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And, and I think it's, well, I'm going to use my small little soapbox here, this platform to help get that message out, especially when coming from people like yourself, because I believe the exact same thing. I think it's crazy when uh, what's happening, but I'm interested, or I was interested to hear from, from your perspective. Yeah. Well, we're seeing it in the U.S. too, right? In that regard, I will tell you that the U.S. is head and shoulders above the Canadian government. My customers or our branches They've gotten their checks already to keep their employees on board. They've already gotten them from the U.S. government. And they physically have had the money. The U.S. government has been a thousand times more effective in supporting the workers than the Canadian government. It's disgusting. Hmm. Interesting. The headlines had me believing something different. It's just not true. I can tell you right now, I know about the checks that have been written. I, I have one branch that he's a very large branch. He's got $750,000 in his bank account last week. Another one got $350,000 in their bank account. Even us, we're eligible. They're interest-free loans for six months, but all of our U.S. employees, and we have several, we may well get a large loan from the U.S. government to keep our U.S. employees employed. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting to hear because I was under a completely different impression, but there you go. I mean, it's so hard to believe what you see in the news these days. Well, there's a lot of things that aren't right, but I can tell you right now, the Canadian government, can you imagine? Look at us. We don't have enough revenue to be profitable, so we're actually having to 
to spend several hundred thousand dollars every month just to stay open so we can service our customers so to get through this thing. I mean, we're a company with the future. That's who you should be investing in. You should also be investing in people that have, if they have, say a little restaurant went bankrupt, they should get to be funded to start again when this is all over. That's the kind of money that should be there. You know, I'm sitting there, I've gone to the Dragon Pearl in Inglewood since 1982. He's the only guy that would give me credit when I went bankrupt. I make sure I go down there and get my hot and sour soup and and my lemon chicken and all that from them because I want them to stay in business. I want Tom's House of Pizza to stay in business. You know, they've been so loyal to us over the years, you know, and all that. So it seems like small things, but there are things, by the way, in Vernon, I want helmets, meat and sausage to stay in business. I picked up a bunch of them when I was there this weekend. So yeah, then they're the ones that deserve it. They should be allowed to start again and that we should help them start again. We really should. Mogens, what I take from our conversations and from the research I've done on you and your career, and in fact, speaking with some of your employees before, or partners, if you will, before this interview, is that you're a leader who, it seems you, you first and foremost think about the people that are surrounding you because that's what makes these things work. And, but where do you look for leadership and where do you look for inspiration? What mentors or idols have you had in your life? Well, my father and my mother were great mentors. A guy named Steve Doodlezak, who was my landlord in 82, who financed me to start again in a, a separate building, you know, and was still the landlord for the other company. Ed McNally from Big Rock was a great mentor. I've met so many amazing people. I know I'm missing some because there's a Jerry Howells that was my chairman in Utah, was a great mentor for me, you know. I've had so many Every day I talk to people that, are, that see the world. It, you know, we certainly don't agree on politics, a lot of our American friends and myself. But at the end of the day, I see, and I have so many great friends and supporters and that have been mentors. And I'd like to think that that's, you know, that it's times like this where you really, really appreciate them. Hmm. Interesting. Now, as we wrap up on time here, and I want to be respectful of yours, do you have any final advice for those who are going through these difficult times or those who are leading public companies? What would you, if you had the chance, just make one point for them? What would that be so that it would help them be better? I made a speech for Price Industries at a shareholders meeting in Winnipeg about eight years ago. They wanted Clive Bettle. Clive Bettle wasn't available. So Clive had suggested for me to be the speaker at their shareholders meeting. And the title of it was called Chicken Shit CEOs. And if there is ever a time for CEOs or any of us, this is our time to demonstrate leadership and strength, no matter what the consequences of all are. This is no time for us to be selfish. If someone has to burn, then it has to be us. But we have to demonstrate what's the very best interest of our business and our people. And that's what we need to demonstrate right now. Put yourself on the line, first and you foremost. You have to be. It's your job. That's the way it is. Don't take the title if you don't want to take the responsibility. I'm, I'm going to highlight that in our intro for this episode because I think it's an incredibly powerful point. And with that, I think I'll wrap it up there. I, I want to say thank you so much for making the time because I know this is going to be well-received and you're a huge part of our economy and our community, our business community in Calgary. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much and good luck. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. 
For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.